Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except sometimes the author stops by. Our August selection is Andrew Leland's memoir, The Country of the Blind. It's about how he navigates his degenerative eye disease, how blind people have advocated for themselves throughout American history, and the intersectionality of blindness. It explores a number of really evocative ideas around gaze and imagination and the importance of getting lost. It also happens to be very funny. Andrew, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for including this book in the book club. I was super excited to see that. I'm very happy to have you. Thanks for coming on. So you have retinitis pigmentosa, also known as RP. For people who aren't familiar with it, can you explain what it is? Yeah, it's a genetic eye disease, or it's kind of, it's a family of eye diseases that all go under the umbrella and of RP. And I have a kind of a classic version of it. Uh, my doctor has led me to believe like it's, um, some people go blind super early from it. Uh, some I've, I've seen on the RP Facebook page, there's like 80 year olds who are still driving somehow, but have RP, but basically there's in your eye, there are rod cells and cone cells, rods and cones. You probably have heard about them at some point in your travels through biology class (laughs) and the rods give you peripheral vision and uh, night vision. And so with RP, the rods die first. And so as a kid, um, I noticed I had night blindness. Um, Like I would go to the movies and be like, why is everybody so casual about like getting up to go to the bathroom in the middle? For me, it was like terrifying uh, because I would just like get lost. And then over the years, like really over decades, that became like, oh, I guess I can't even really drive a car at night. And then eventually like, oh, I probably not shouldn't drive a car during the day because then my peripheral vision, even in good light, started to go. So I would leave people hanging for high fives. Hmm. And really only like in the last five or five or 10 years, it's gotten to the point where I decided that a white cane was uh, going to save me and other people from mayhem and <laughs> using, you know, using a screen reader on my computer and my phone so I could like listen to the text instead of use it visually. And lots of those sort of more hardcore blindness tools that forced me to kind of confront the world of blindness in a way I hadn't really had to before. Yeah. I really love your use of that phrase, forcing you to confront the world of blindness, because I also have a genetic degenerative eye disease. Oh, wow. Welcome. Mine's called Best Disease. Thank you. Yeah, I. it's a weird club. It's a really weird club. Yeah. So mine is um, essentially premature macular degeneration. So it's more central vision uh-huh. than peripheral. Oh, are you using like assistive technology? Nah, I mean, I definitely have like big ass fonts everywhere. And reading mm. print books is getting harder, especially like in lower light. The The movie theater thing is extremely real for me. Um, you also wow. talk about like finding bathrooms and restaurants and that's like, yes. And I try not to drive <laughs> at night. So like, I'm still like hanging in, in the country of the yeah. sighted, I think. But yeah, yeah, I think partly reading this book, like I, I think it was on the millions. I saw rave reviews of it and I was like, oh shit, 
I'm about to like actually confront this in a very real way hmm. that I kind of haven't a whole lot in my life. So I am really grateful for the book. I thought it was beautiful and I think I'm going to, I, it's one of those where I feel like I'm going to buy a million copies and hand them out to all my friends. So they have to read it too. <laughs> oh man. I mean, I mean, I like quote a, a friend of mine, Will Butler in the book. Like when I first told him I had RP and he was like, people think I sound like a crazy person, but when I hear somebody is going blind, I have to stop myself from being like, that's awesome. And I have to admit that like, when you said that just now, my first reaction was to be like, hell yeah, welcome. Like, let's do this. Uh, I realize that it's a different experience from where you're sitting, but like, there is so much that is fascinating and kind of exciting about it. Yeah. So I hope that you finding those parts of it too. Well, thank you for saying that. Well, I think reading your book really helped me realize that. And I was like, Oh good. Now I can do this for book club and trick Andrew into being friends with me. <laughs> <laughs> totally your mission accomplished amazing so how is your vision these days like what what can you see what can't you see yeah so i've got about i think like five percent of what a fully sighted person sees and it yeah. still is very much in that like narrowing tunnel like the beginning of the james bond movie where like the aperture <laughs> just like is closing um so in that central vision you know like i compare it to looking through a paper towel tube or a toilet paper tube yeah. you know so like yeah. in that at the in, in the middle of that circle it's pretty good like i can tell that you know my son is frowning at me or my wife is wearing like paisley or whatever um but like practically i still don't read print because even if i could like see be so you know, slow force myself to read a word on the page yeah it's just incredibly inefficient and and, and painful like it's just after 10 minutes or something i'll just even yeah. less you know i just will um give up because it's too hard so i use yeah i use all the assistive tech but and, and for walking around too like even if i can see like a street sign for example like i need the cane because otherwise i'm going to fall off a curb and kick a dog and you know walk into a street pole and all that yeah street signs man why are they so small what the hell <laughs> yeah the newer ones they made bigger i feel like somebody got the memo and realized that mm. you got to make it in like 50 point type for for us low vision folks. Yes. Higher contrast, please. Yes. So when it comes to something I find myself doing with my central vision, like I've got some blurry spots kind of in the middle. And so I'll find mm. myself, like I'll wander my eye around a thing because I think yeah. it kind of helps me fill in some gaps. Is it similar for you with yours? Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll do like a Z pattern. I think somebody told oh, me once like a low vision specialist was like, do a Z pattern. So like if I'm getting up from a cafe, I'll like really do like a methodical sweep over the surface to try to catch everything. Although I have to tell you that like, this is the point I'm in now where the Z sweep is often inefficient. Like I'll still miss something. And so mm -hmm. even though it feels so counterintuitive to like be a super blind guy and like run my hands across the, the surface of my cafe table before I leave mm. and it feels embarrassing because I'm like that's a blind guy way to do it and I just seem like extra blind even though like it's a ridiculous thought because I'm like holding a white cane and whatever yeah, yeah my phone is talking to me but it's still like these little transitions are hard but but the thing is like it's way more effective like I'm not going to leave anything behind if I just like do a quick swipe even though it's kind of gross and I feel the stickiness and the crumbs mm, the stickiness. And, but I'm not going to like leave my whatever you know $400 leather fedora uh behind <laughs> So what do you think is the most misunderstood thing about blindness? Hmm. I mean, one thing that immediately comes to mind is that blindness is a spectrum, which yes. is sort of like an obvious thing, I think, once you when you think about it. But I still think people just see that white cane and they're like, ah, that person sees absolutely nothing. And I guess like a corollary to this is that not only 
do people not understand blindness as a spectrum, but they're just the default condition is one of like helplessness and being lost. Yeah. And so capability. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's like a, it's like a one, two punch. Like I think you, I think the average person sees a blind person on a street corner and thinks a, they see nothing and B they need help. And Mm. you know, I would say the vast majority of the times, neither of those things are true because only 10 or 15% of blind people have no light perception. So that person may see something. And even if they don't, or regardless of what they see, there's a pretty good chance they don't need help because like, you know, they're like anybody else. Like, I can't tell you the number of blind people who've told me stories about standing, you know, in front of their place of employment or in front of their home or just like on the route they do every day right. to buy coffee at the local coffee shop. And somebody's like, Elm Street is on your right. Oh my there God. is a car. You know, and you're like, really? <laughs> uh, I live here and I can hear the car yeah, exactly. and like my cane feels the curve. Like, what is wrong with you? But that's just a con- that's an everyday experience. Well, yeah, you even mentioned there's a lady. What is she like tells you you're crossing the street or something? Isn't that what it was in the book? Yeah, 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 we were standing, uh, we were standing, waiting, waiting, and then I clearly had, like, heard the same thing she heard, or, I mean, she had seen it, I had heard it, like, okay, it's safe to cross now, and we had, like, taken five steps, and she goes, crossing the street now, and I was just like, what did you think I thought? Like, I was just like, I'm walking into a swamp, maybe I don't, yeah, help! Oh my god, that's so wild, it's just, it's nuts. Have you always had such a good sense of humor about it, or is that sort of like a... A necessary adaptation because you're I mean you're describing these things it's it's hilarious I mean yeah I think when I was pitching the book I remember in my book proposal I was like this will be a slapstick journey into blindness <laughs> and my publisher was like they were like very skeptical and that was like a big sticking point in the first meeting they were like slapstick what do you mean slapstick and I think they were imagining just like a Mr. Magoo episode where I'm just like I fell down a flight of stairs but <laughs> oh, no. uh you know there's there's a blind writer I really two blind writers who both have RP who who wrote memoirs that I read when I was just kind of at the point maybe you are where I was like, mm. hmm, maybe blindness this is something is that might be up. a part of my life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and they, Ryan Knighton and Jim Knipfel, and they both write about blindness as slapstick. And I think there is like huh. a kind of, you have to have a sense of humor. Like, like, like I was saying about the rubbing my hands all over the sticky cafe table. Like I can either be like really depressed about that and just be like touching other people's crumbs again, or just like, <laughs> this is funny. Like, you know, uh, life is weird and this is included in that weirdness. Yeah. And thank God I have a $400 leather fedora, I guess too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just, by the way, just for the record, I do not own a $400 or any amount of money fedora. Okay, good. <laughs> Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we will be back with more of our conversation with Andrew in just a minute. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So this book was also really interesting because it is very personal, but you're also talking about just the history of blindness, especially in the United States and, you know, groups that have formed and their politics. 
And it was all super interesting. I had actually already known about the fact that audiobooks were originally created as books for the blind um, because we did an episode about audiobooks earlier this year. And it reminded me that the first time I had ever heard of audiobooks was because my grandfather, who also had best disease, would check Mm. them out from the Library of Congress. And I remember listening to them, which it's just I think it is really fascinating. That's one of those examples of something that was initially marketed to such a specific group of people. But obviously, I mean, it's its own industry now. Totally. And even even the technology of like a long playing record, uh, you know, when when audiobooks were first being developed, like the first talking books for the blind were being developed. There's this guy, Robert Irwin, who is the blind head of the American Foundation of the Blind. And he reached out to engineers from Bell Labs uh, and said, you know, is there a way to put more content on these acetate final, you know, early Mm-hmm. records and and so the first lps actually were listened to by blind people and yeah there's there's lots of examples of technology that like the type the first patents for typewriters were created as as writing machines for blind people hmm. it's you see that again and again in the history of technology and media that not just blindness but disability really designing for disability ends up creating these devices that change the way everybody lives yeah it almost seems like if you created a world that supported the most marginalized people everybody benefits from that Totally. I mean, it's like what we were talking about with those street signs. You know, it's not just uh, it's not just low vision folks who benefit from large, larger, clearer street signs. But, you know, like if it's raining or if if your windshield is iced over. Yeah. um, The idea of universal design is is exactly that. It's like the, the famous example is the curb cut effect where wheelchair users advocated for these curb cuts where there's like a smooth slope so you can roll Mm -hmm. on and off of a sidewalk independently. And then lo and behold, you know, people pushing strollers or elders pulling shopping carts all love curb cuts, too. And, and mm-hmm. you see it again and again in design. So speaking of audiobooks, you narrated this. How did you read? I did. The, did you did like a computer read you the words and then you said them back? No. So I still have enough vision that with if I can blow things up huge um, and invert the colors is really important. Oh, I can amazing. still read visually. So I like the week that I was doing it, I found this typeface that the Braille Institute in L.A. developed called atkinson hyperlegible and it's Amazing. like a typeface designed for low vision people so that like there's you know the letters are more distinguished from each other and i like reflowed my book into that in like 20 or 30 point That's ta- font and um the horrible thing was i was like okay the font is so big that i can really only see like half a sentence at a time on my screen but if i just am scrolling constantly i'll be good and then the engineer like after on the first minute she was like I can hear your scrolling. You have to, <laughs> you can't scroll and talk at the same time. And so I would just oh, have to no. be like, once upon a scroll, scroll, scroll time, there was oh, a my scroll, God. scroll. But she, she, she convinced me that it was okay and they could cut out my pauses. And then they played it back for me, just like what it sounded like without those pause scrolls and uh, it sounded fine. So That's it was a nuts. very stressful experience, but, but got through it. That sounds very stressful, but it sounds great. I mean, I thought you did a great job. I loved listening to you doing it. Oh, thanks. So in the book, you also talk about some notable artists and writers who experience some sort of, in many cases, like pretty severe vision loss over the course of their lives. Um, I already knew about Claude Monet, but I don't think I knew about like Milton or James Joyce or Borges, which is fascinating. Did you know about those guys before you started writing or was it over the course of your research? Borges has for me always been the like, even more than Milton, I think just because of my tastes as a reader, Mm. um, he has loomed large in my imagination as like the kind of best case scenario for a writer who's going blind. Because I think not just later, like pretty late in my life uh, as a 
reader, I found his essay on, it's actually a lecture he gave that um, was, was transcribed on blindness. And that thing is just like, you know, some people carry around the constitution in their pockets. Like, I feel like Borges' lecture on blindness is something I just, I return to it again and again, just because he, he like, he makes it sound not just like survivable, but he has this great line about how it's, it shouldn't be seen in a pathetic way. It's just a style of living. Mm. And, And that idea is so powerful for me. Like it doesn't have to be a tragedy. It can just be a different way of doing things. And I think that's really true and just like easy to forget. Yeah, it's really cool. It's funny. I so I was diagnosed when I was four, and I think no learning about Monet, especially I was, and I don't even paint, but there was still something about it where like the fact that he could create such beautiful work as his vision is dwindling is, I think it's really profound. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I in the book I write about an artist I met named Emily Gassio, who's mm-hmm. who's contemporary. She's still making work, and you know she was going to Cooper Union, the art school in New York, and got in a terrible bike accident and was instantly blinded. And then there was this moment in her life where she was like, maybe I'll become a massage therapist. Like I definitely can't be an artist. Yeah. And then she she pivoted and she like got her blindness skills and then she went back to Cooper and like finished and then got an MFA from Yale in sculpture. And now she's just like kicking ass and making amazing work. And there's, there's, you know, there are a lot of stories like that. There are also a lot of stories that aren't like that, you know, where people don't get the resources and don't, you know, hear about Borges or Emily Gassio, whoever Monet and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, really fall into a dark place. You know, I, I had to be careful not to only be like, you know, here are the heroes of blindness, you know, because I, I want to be mindful of the other side of that coin too. But I do think it's important for the average reader to realize that it's not just like the tragic death sentence that so many people perceive it to be when they see that person standing on the corner. Yeah. So yeah, speaking of the other side of the coin, I mean, I thought you handled ableism really well in this book, which is something I think about a lot, you know, given my own diagnosis and moving Mm. forward, because it's, you know, I mean, initially it's like, yeah, if I could not be blind, that would be my preference. Right. Sure. Um, can you talk about sort of like how you, I feel like you're towing a complicated line and I thought, I thought you did a really beautiful job and I'd love to hear just sort of like what your thought process was like with that. Yeah. It's tough because, you know, people, including loved ones, you know, really close family members do push back on me and they sort of say like, well, there's definitely loss there, right? Like, don't be such a cheerleader that right. you're, you're actually like excited to go blind. And I do. And so that there, there is this tension between what really I think can best be described as mourning the loss of sight. Like, I think if you're, yeah. if you're born blind, obviously it's a different situation, but I think for those of us who, who lose vision, you have to mourn that loss because is, it's not like you were bummed out about having vision beforehand. Like realistically, it makes life much easier. The world is built for the sighted. Like vision is incredibly powerful. And so losing it, you have to, you have to accept that as a loss and and mourn it as a loss. But then I think the thing that a lot of people blind or sighted have trouble hanging on to is the idea that like, once you mourn that it is possible to move on and that there's not like a permanent state of longing necessarily. Mm. And, and so, yeah, like in terms of ableism, I think like there is this perception from the outside that like one if one isn't in that permanent state of longing and mourning that you're fooling yourself. And that is infuriating. I mean, the other part of it is just like the more political side, which is the kind of conscious or unconscious exclusion that happens where people will just build websites or, um, universities or, or any number of things that just completely exclude blind people or disabled people, you know, Mm -hmm. and that I think is the more urgent form of ableism, but they're all tied together. So like I recently wrote a story for, eater the the food website 
Um, and, and it was about blind people's experiences in restaurants. And, you know, there was a moment where I was like, you know, writing passionately about menu accessibility. And like, Mm. you know, I was like, what is actually at stake for blind people being able to like independently choose between truffle fries or garlic fries or regular fries? You know, it's like sort of ridiculous. But, but then, you know, talking to the, the, the folks who are working on those issues, the reality is that like, it's all tied together. And that if you have a perception of a blind person who just like, like a child needs to have the menu read to them when they go to a restaurant like that, that seeps into every other part of their lives. And then the person they're eating dinner with will have no idea that they'll have any capability of holding down a job or, you know, browsing the internet or walking around on their own. So it's all, it's all interconnected, that kind of ableism. For sure. The menu one that gets me sometimes, like if the restaurant, you know, if it's like hip and low light or if it's like a blackboard on the wall behind the counter, there's totally I'm out you know? Yes. And it it always makes me think it's lovely to have friends and like a partner who's happy to read me the menu. And it does always remind Mm -hmm. me of, did you watch Arrested Development? Uh, yeah, but I'm not going to, it's, I, I was not a completist. So you'll have to give me cliff notes. There's this absurd scene in it when Will Arnett is reading a menu to Hmm. Liza Minnelli. She's got, um, vertigo and so he's reading it to her they're at this fancy restaurant they're dating so he's reading it to her very sexily but all the items on the menu are like fried cheese with club sauce (laughs) feed me the appetizers again fried cheese with club sauce popcorn shrimp with club sauce chicken fingers spicy Clubs. No, I mean, stop it. It's just so <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I go both, I go, I, I'm, you know, I, I enjoy my, when my son or my wife uh, k- gives me, you know, it's a sweet and a, they're There's good a at it. There's sweetness to it, yeah. Totally. But, but I think at the same time, like you want to have the option of doing it independently. Of course, yeah. Absolutely. There's there's sort of certain aspects that I don't want it to be mediated through my family every time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's or totally they might not fair. be there. You know, I'm on my own. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, totally. So I love that you refer to your eyes as peepers. I often refer to mine as eyeballs. <laughs> I do wonder if it's like <laughs> to make them seem more innocuous than they kind of are. You know what I mean? Totally. I mean, I said I said peepers. I think primarily because my kid right. started, you know, getting old enough to like be conscious of like what was happening, or at least yeah. like. Yeah. And I didn't want to be like, son, retinitis pigmentosa is an inherited, <laughs> you know, eyes. retinal disease. Yeah. But I'd be like, I got bad peepers, you know, and he totally yeah. picked it up. I heard him say yeah. to a friend of his one time, like, oh, we got to pick these toys up because my dad has bad peepers. And I was like, <laughs> yes, like that was that was a great moment in <laughs> the annals of blind fatherhood. It's just adorable. I love it so much. So what do you miss looking at the most or do you not think of it that way? Well, it's complicated because like I said, I still look at stuff all the time. Right. Um, and, and people ask me that question and I do think about that, but you know, I think I'm at the place right now where I'm trying to let go of vision, but also not like push it away. And it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, you know, a, a friend of mine who I mentioned, Will Butler, you know, he said to me in this kind of tough love way, like, you know, Andrew, you're probably going to be going blind for a long time. And at some point you might be more blind or less blind, but you're just going to have to like accept that you've gone blind and just let that process continue. I've thought about that a lot since I read it. Yeah. I mean, it's so hard because like I, I, I get myself all riled up and I'm like, okay, I wrote the book. I'm like learning the blindness skills. I did it. I'm blind. And then I'll be like, 
but look at all the stuff you're looking at. Like you're such a faker, you know, it's Mm -hmm. this sort of like imposter syndrome again. And then I go back the other direction and I'm like, why did I just burn my eyes out? Like, and I'm like, my eyes are swimming and I feel so bad now because I just forced myself to do stuff visually for so long. I should be using these blind skills. So like, for me, it's less about like specific images that I'm going to miss and more about like how to live my life where I'm not clinging to vision, but I'm also not rejecting it. And I'm just sort of like, like there's a deafblind poet who's like my, probably my number one blindness hero mentor named John Mm -hmm. Lee Clark. And he, he has a essay collection coming out uh, in a couple months. Um, and, and he writes about how he had to make this decision to sort of consciously let go of sight, which didn't mean that he like wouldn't look, but he just wouldn't use it for navigation. So like he went to a, a school for the deaf and, you know, had beautiful old buildings and trees and he would just stop looking down at his feet all the time to try to catch the curbs and just use his cane. And like his blindfold became the beautiful scenery. And, mm. and that's, that's something I aspire to. So I try to, I try to keep looking, but not, not rely on it so I can sort of enjoy it while I have it. And then when it goes away, I'm not left high and dry. It's so beautiful. It's also really, it's like Zen as fuck. <laughs> that was the working title of the book, Zen as fuck, the how to be blind. Uh, no, it totally is. I mean, yeah, because it's like, it's about non-attachment, right? Right, like, how right. Do you, how do you let go of something that every bone in your body is suggesting that you cling to? Yeah, yeah, the clinging. It's so, I feel like, yeah, it makes me think too of like a closed fist, a closed fist versus an open palm, you know? There's such yes. different ways of yeah. being in the world. And it's, and it's one of those things too, where like when you can finally inhabit it and, and actually let go, like you're instantly like, oh, right. This is so much more powerful. Like I'm so much more fluid and effective and like I get shit done more, but, but it's really hard to do. And it's, and it's, the other thing is, is it's a practice. So like, you know, I will come to these conclusions yet. I'm like, nice. Like that nice work writing that book, Andrew, like you nailed it, you're done. And then like, I wake up and I'm filled with all the same doubts and confusions. Mm -hmm. And it's like every day I sort of have to write the book again, not to to paraphrase Elvis Costello. (laughs) Does it wear you out to have to talk about it so much now too? I mean, you're catching me at like the peak of my book comes out tomorrow. Uh, so I'm not allowed to be worn out talking about it. And I definitely brought this upon myself, like writing the book, but you know, honestly, the ambiguity of this experience was so frustrating. And like, I would walk down the street almost wishing I had a t-shirt that had like the first 30 pages of the book printed on it so that people could just be like, get what I'm going through. So like, I'm not worn out because it's just, if it's like a relief to be able to say to the world or whatever percentage of the world cares, like, Hey, this is what this experience is like. You know, the other thing that I was saying that sounds a little like self-protective, but is, I promise you true is just like, I, you know, and the perception has been good so far. So I'm really grateful for that. But like, I really left it all on the table with this book. And so like, Mm -hmm. even if nobody liked it or read it, I just feel like it was one of these books that like writing it was so helpful to me. And Mm -hmm. like, I worked so hard on it that like the world can do with it what it wants. Like I got what I needed out of it. And now everything else is just like gravy. Man, speaking of being Zen as fuck, you did it. That's it right there. Fuck. (laughs) I dare anybody to be more Zen than I am. Bring it. I'd lay the challenge down. I'm the most zen. (laughs) Best zen. Oh my God, Andrew, I could talk to you all day. This is such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Greta. (laughs) 
Okay, y'all, you know what to do. Read Andrew's memoir, The Country of the Blind. It is out now. And then, of course, let us know what you think of it. You can join the conversation by recording yourself on your smartphone and then emailing that file to nerdappodcast at gmail.com. Then come back and listen to our discussion of the book on the last Tuesday of the month. And if you haven't heard the news already, here is your head start on our September selection. It isn't out until later this month, but get on the wait lists now. It is Angie Kim's newest book, Happiness Falls. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman at WBEZ in Chicago and is part of the NPR network. Brendan Banaszak is our executive producer. We will see you on Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.